The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. Season 2 provides more episodes and features a wider variety of professions. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Black Doctors Podcast. Today, I'm privileged to have Dr. Wilton Triggs on the phone. He's a plastic surgeon currently practicing in Ohio. Dr. Triggs, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So as a plastic surgeon, what's your day-to-day practice like? So I'm a hospital-based plastic surgeon. I'm employed by a hospital group. And so I do a lot more reconstructive versus someone that's probably in private practice that does mostly aesthetics. My practice mix right now is probably about 60-40, 60% reconstructive, 40% cosmetic. And honestly, uh, my cosmetic numbers have actually increased since the shutdown and, uh, you know, the whole COVID pandemic. So a lot more people are coming in, getting aesthetic surgery. I'm I'm thinking maybe they've been saving a lot of money home. Uh, or just, you know, maybe they're using some of that stimulus check. I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, so right now it's about 60-40, and honestly, it may even be more than that. But yeah, my uh, typical day is like on Mondays, I have my larger surgeries, and then usually I have afternoon clinic. I usually have clinic uh, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and then every other Friday I have outpatient surgeries. And then I do smaller procedures like in office procedures um, under local on Wednesdays and some Monday uh, afternoons. Yeah. What's your favorite type of procedure to do? Uh, I like a lot of the body contouring and massive weight loss procedures. So people that have lost like a ton of weight and they just have like a lot of excess skin and stuff like that. So arm lifts, thigh lifts, tummy tucks, liposuction, mastopexy. I I like to do a lot of uh, breast reconstruction um, just because my training program we, we were exposed to a lot of different types of breast reconstruction because we worked at the Moffitt Cancer Center in uh, Tampa, which is like the sixth largest cancer center in the country. So we would operate mm-hmm. from sun up to sundown doing mostly breast reconstruction after mastectomies. And so uh, I enjoy a lot of those procedures, but I would say mostly a lot of the like massive weight loss because it's almost like instant gratification. Like when you remove all that excess skin and you can see, you know, uh, the person's shape develop and you know, you just kind of find some things. And a lot of those people, they work so hard to get that weight, that weight off and get to a healthy balance because, you know, for a massive weight loss patient, they have to wait like a year to almost two years to be at a stable weight before they can have any body contouring procedure because their weight is so widely fluctuating. And so, you know, it's been a long wait. It's been a lot of uh, time, a lot of money. And so I like to like give them, you know, try to give them as close to the body as they would desire. So. I really like those. You're doing it at a, at a BBW. Uh, exactly. All of that. <laughs> bodies by Wilt. Man, Bodies by Wilt. That's going to be the new hashtag. It's coming soon. So with uh, when you were coming out of residency training, you, know, you had options to do fellowship or private practice or academics or the type of practice you're in now. What led you to make this decision? Uh, well, I knew... I think by the end of fourth year, because uh, my, my training program was a six-year program, that I wasn't too much interested in fellowship. I felt like I just wanted to do like kind of bread and butter plastic surgery and that my program like prepares us pretty well to do that. 
that you don't really need a fellowship because we are very uh, heavy clinically, meaning we did a lot. We do a lot of surgeries. Our numbers are really high compared to other programs. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to, you know, be doing cleft lips and cleft palates. Um, I didn't see myself doing like major hand reconstruction and things like that. So I was like, I'm just going to go out in private practice. It wasn't until my chief year when I was interviewing, I knew I wasn't going to go out on my own straight, straight forward because I didn't want to have to deal with the business stuff just yet. I felt like I wasn't uh, prepared to do that, you know, from a financial standpoint and just from a uh, business acumen uh, standpoint. So I was like, I'm just, wherever I go, I'm just going to learn the business as I go. So I was either going to partner up in private practice or I was going to join a hospital or a VA. I wasn't necessarily shooting for an academic job. Uh, I, didn't, I don't like doing research. And, you know, and usually, you know, you kind of get dumped on as a, uh, a first year academic surgeon. That's how you right. kind of pull your weight or learn things out. But I wasn't interested in that either. So I knew that like a hospital based employment or a private practice, like joining somebody in private practice was the, the way for me to go. Now, ultimately, what do I want to do later on? I'm still not sure. I'm still trying to figure it out. I like what I'm doing now. I like where I'm at. But at the same time, there's nothing like having your own practice and doing things how you want to do it, when you want to do it, and you know, having your name on the building. So That's nice. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, watch and see what the future has in store for you. Oh, yeah. Who do you uh, currently work with? you have nurse practitioners or PAs that help you in the OR, or how does that work? So um, right now, uh, it's just me. Like, I do all the sewing. Some of my uh, scrub nurses are, are first assist or are able to first assist, so I'll let them help me close. But, man, most of the sewing is done by me. So a lot of the bigger operations, like breast reductions, uh, tummy tucks and stuff like that, where, where there's a lot of sewing, like, I just have to be, like, really keen and efficient in the operating room so I don't have them under anesthesia too long because it's just a lot of sewing. But a lot of times I have, like, a, a first assist in there to help me. Now, as I get more busy, then I'll probably look at getting a nurse practitioner uh, to help me out in the operating room and in the clinic to do a lot of, like, lasers and injectables and stuff like that. And, and what does that look like, bringing on a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant? You know, a lot of them have like really good training because they have to do rotations. And so really, if you can have them, they usually pick up things pretty quickly, shadow you and like pick up your preferences and stuff like that. You teach them almost like a resident. They pick they pick up pretty strongly. I mean, it's just like, you know, if you have a weak resident or, you know, a weak nurse or something like that. But usually, I mean, my experience, even in residency where they were like top notch. It's just real. And, you know, medicine is all about experience. Like the more you see, the more you do, the better you get. And so, you know, I feel like if I just take my time with them and, you know, just kind of show them why I do things, you know, teach them just like I would uh, another resident, show them pictures, illustrations, give them stuff to read that it'll it'll benefit me. They'll get faster and more efficient in seeing things. It'll cut down on calls from them to me, uh, run the stuff by me. So it's just, you know, you just got to put, you got to treat them as an investment. Right. And I guess the difference being, I mean, residency, every one to two months, you're switching into a different um, service. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Which makes it hard in plastic surgery because everybody does things different. They do breast reductions different. They suture different. They want you to suture different. So that's probably like one of the hardest things in plastic surgery residency is that everybody has their own preferences on how things should be done. Uh, from the clinic and definitely in the operating room. So it can be real frustrating. So take us back 
you're from where are you from originally uh huntsville alabama take us back to huntsville what was going on when you first decided to become a physician so i was in undergrad because when i first got to college i wanted to be an engineer i was gonna take my engineering degree make some money and open a restaurant that was my goal i was just gonna open up a restaurant and i was just gonna do my thing because i'm like a huge foodie i always have been um you know i'll a lot of people at UAB, University of Alabama, Birmingham, go there because that's where the University of Alabama's medical school is. And so everybody's pre-med. And so I was like, all right, well, I'll be pre-med too. Everybody else doing it. <laughs> and so, you know, I had engineering background, uh, doing engineering, and I was pre-med. And so I started watching the show House and was like, and loved it, man. I was like, man, this is so cool. So this is what it's like to be a doctor inside so my junior year. I did this program sponsored by the AAMC called SMDEP, which is a Summer Medical Dental Education Program. And they have various sites across the country where you do like six weeks, you get like MCAT prep, you get seminars and courses from other med students, other physicians, uh, you shadow, basically give you a crash course. If you were to go into medical school, this is what it looked like, or dental school. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. And so I got back. I changed my major from engineering to chemistry. Had to do an extra year. Uh, I had just got into the engineering honors program. Like, I had just got an extra scholarship. I had to turn it all down because I was like, oh, no. Yeah, I, did, I was like, I'm about to do this medicine. And so I uh, took, uh, took the MCAT, got in, and um, uh, applied. I, I think I applied to, like, I don't know, 10 schools. And looking back, and looking back, I would apply to way more schools. Um, and honestly, I don't even know. Like, I think money is what limited me when it came to applying. Yeah. And, and uh, I got waitlisted. I got waitlisted at UAB, which to me was like a slap in the face because I knew people that had uh, matriculated in that I had better scores than, did more extracurriculars in, did more shadow than. Like I was, because I, I mean. I've been pre-med the whole time. So even though I was doing engineering, I was still like showing up to these mock interviews. I was still doing community service. I was super active on campus. I had a good GPA, even though I was an engineer. My GPA wasn't that. My MCAT was decent. So like, I just thought it was like a slap in the face. And so when I interviewed at Meharry, like literally, oh no, man, I think I interviewed at Meharry like on a Thursday or a Friday. I had an email uh, by Monday. Wow. So I remember leaving the gym asking if I want to matriculate. I was like, man, I'm not about to wait around. And I think I even still had some more interviews left. I was like, I'm not about to wait around. So I just went ahead and accepted it. Um, and the only reason I applied to Meharry is because my mom told me to. Wow. My, yeah, my mom's an HBCU grad. She knew about Meharry. And, um, you know, at the time that I was, like, applying, you know, these application fees were racking up. And Meharry's mm-hmm. was, like, 80, 80 or $85. And I, was remember, I remember being broke. And was like, man, I don't know how I'm going to afford this, uh, this application fee. And my lab partner in this research lab, you know, I was telling him about it. And I remember one day he texted me and he didn't even have my number. So he must have got it from somebody in the lab and was like, uh, hey, are you still thinking about applying here? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, I got the application fee money for you uh, if you need it. And I was like, who is this? And he was like, he was joking around to say this. Is it was like uh, from the name Elijah. And so I, I accepted the money, went on the interview, and, um, you know, I remember being at the interview, and they kept preaching this whole thing about, like, family, uh, here's a family, and 
you know, it's not a cutthroat atmosphere. So I was like, man, whatever. This is vet school. People are out here probably, right, like, right. you know, like gunning and stuff like that. But it was true, man. Like, like your classmates become family over time. And then like even the other classes uh, that you interact with people, because it's such a small school, everybody interacts. You know what I'm saying? I would not change that experience for nothing. I probably, I had like a really good time in college. I probably had a better time in, uh, in medical school. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. Yeah. For those of you that don't know, um, Harry Medical College is a historically black um, graduate program in Nashville, Tennessee. They have a couple of different programs, right? Yeah, they have a Ph.D. program, Master's of Science and uh, dental. So as you were at Meharry, when did you decide to go into plastic surgery? So I was kind of late in the game. So I went into med school thinking I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. I bought all these books. Uh, of course, I read the Ben Carson book. Uh, I read this book called Brain Surgeon by Keith Black. Out, out I think he's at Cedars or at UCLA. I can't remember. Um, all these books on uh, like brain surgery and stuff like that. So I went in there thinking that's what I wanted to do. And so the summer after my first year, I was like, you know, I shadowed time. I was like, man, I don't think this is for me. Like it was just too intense. <laughs> Those guys didn't go home. I was like, man, this isn't for me. So I started looking at uh, dermatology. So my second year, I applied to the American Academy of Dermatology. They have this mentorship program where they pay, they give you a stipend, and you do like a month, one month elective rotation with a, a, a society uh, member um, to see, you know, about you know dermatology. So I did it at uh, Vanderbilt for a month and really liked it. And then um, they have like this thing called a Mohs surgeon, which is basically they remove skin cancers and they look at look at it under the microscope to clear margins themselves and do the reconstruction. So I really like that surgery part of it. And so they were like, well, if you really like this, you should probably check out plastics because they do a lot more than we do um, in regards to this. So I did a two week rotation in plastics at Vanderbilt during my surgery rotation. They went back and did another one month rotation. And I was just I was just hooked from that. But at that point, I think I was in my third year when I did those elective rotations. And most people that go in doing plastics, they come in like from day one. Right, school, right. Start doing research that's plastics related, like start like, you know, networking, uh, going to a lot of the plastic surgery conferences to meet people. Me, man, I was I was like green. I came in that thing just. Just having to figure it out, and it worked. It worked out. Like I knew I wanted to do something competitive, so my GPA was good, and my board scores were good, and you know my my letters were going to be good because you know I didn't I didn't get in any trouble, and I worked hard and stuff like that. So I knew I was going to some uh, specialized and competitive. So I made sure I was to the best of my abilities that I would be you know uh, ready for that, and I did research, even though it probably wasn't. Um, you know, super related to plastics and stuff like that. I made sure I had it, so I had like a competitive uh, application. Yeah. How was the interview process for you? So I, man, I applied to every plastic surgery program in the country because I wasn't going to make that mistake again, like I did in med school. And uh, I had like a fair amount of interview invites, but it was just expensive. I remember like hearing other people talking about, yeah. You know, I have this interview uh, to this program. They're going to fly me out and cop the hotel and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And plastics, I pay for every single hotel, every single flight. 
you know, they feed you that one night, you know, the right. you know, for the interviews. And that was it. Man, I was I was hurting financially. But the the interviews went fine. I only had like maybe I don't know, like two places where they just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But for the most part, everybody was real nice. And, you know, dealing with some of those, those, uh, ap- well, I wouldn't say applicants, the residents, man, those guys were just like super smart, but they were like super personable. Like people that had like all of this, like real life experience, like, like, yeah, I took years off after college and like trekked through Asia and started a clinic. And hmm. I mean, it, these were the type of people that you were like interviewing against. One guy had been a Navy SEAL. Like, I mean, these people were just like so worldly and well-rounded. And I was just, wow. you know, I was just a guy from Alabama that just, you know, went to school. Like, I took no breaks. I went straight through. I didn't do anything special outside of like, you know, just kind of like different extracurriculars. And I'm like matched up with, you know, someone that damn near started a hospital. So it's just kind right. of like, you know, how am I supposed to win? But you know, things, you know, it happened. When I was at Vanderbilt, I, I rotated with a surgeon exclusively named Jason Wendell. And I think he's in private practice now, but he was on staff at Vanderbilt. He wrote my recommendation and he trained under uh, the surgeon named David Smith, who was the chairman of plastic surgery and surgery at uh, University of South Florida. And he saw that and I interviewed there. All the residents liked me. I gave off a pretty good vibe. I was competitive with my numbers. Mm -hmm. And so he liked what he saw and, you know, he matched me up and, you know, I made it to South Florida. Nice. When did you start your program? Uh, It was July of 2013. Okay. Yeah. I was actually at USF for a master's program, but I was there 2009 to 2010. Oh, yeah. You had already left. How was residency? Uh, residency was rough to me. I I did not like it. I just remember hearing some of my uh, my friends from uh, Meharry that you know went into internal medicine and, and some other some other specialties, and they were loving it, man. They were talking about like, yeah, I learned about this, <laughs> learned about that today, and I was like, man, all I did was get yelled at for like cutting the stitch wrong, you know? What I'm wow. saying? So uh, I I hated residency. I didn't I did not like it. It was it was the toughest thing. I'd ever done in my life, you know, I played ball and, you know, I went through a lot of like personal stuff, issues and stuff like that. But this was the the roughest thing I ever undertook. And it was like six years of it. You know, it, it was a lot of times I felt like, you know, this wasn't for me. That wasn't adequate. I wasn't smart enough. You know, it was it was a rough it was a rough six years. I mean, there was times where I felt like I knew things like cold and like, you know, that, yeah, like, you know, I had those, like, little moments of, like, personal success or whatever. Mm-hmm. But for the totality of it, man, it was it was a rough six years. And I don't think our program is malignant by any chance. You know, our general surgery program may be. And, you know, like, getting through that the first two years was rough. But, yeah, man, I was I, – I did not like residency at all. Like, I <laughs> – it was it was it was the thing, man. I I couldn't wait to be done, and I think that was a, another reason, maybe more subconsciously, that I didn't want to do fellowship. It's just because I hated working under other people, and so when yeah. I started my job, it was it was weird because it was like no one telling me what to do. Like I'm calling the shots, no one's second guessing uh, my call or my plan. Like you know, you start seeing good results. I'm like, man, I've been. 
Like, right. you know, right. Having these same surgical plans for patients for five, four years, you know, as soon as you start running your own OR and was getting backlash for it. And this thing is working, you know, just follow <laughs> the principles. And so it just kind of justifies you because it makes, it does make you study harder. It makes you like, you know, really try to hone your craft when you, I guess you feel like that, but yeah, man, it was, it was not, it was not roses at all for me. Yeah. What advice would you give for medical students that are interested in going into plastic surgery? I know it's um, uncharted territory dealing with coronavirus and upcoming changes to the step um, board exams. What type of advice would you give to students in that situation? I think, uh, especially like third and fourth years when you're in the clinic, definitely keep an open mind when you are rotating and pick up as much knowledge as you can um, because, you know, you're going to be getting referrals from those different specialties. And a lot of things uh, that you deal with in that specialty are going to help you in plastic. So, you know, when I was on burn service, because we run the burn uh, department at USF, you know, you have patients that come in that are severely diabetic. You got to know how to like dose their insulin, when to start endo tool, you know, how to manage these, you know, you're not just doing an operation and walking away from these patients. You got to manage it like their comorbidities. OB-GYN patients, patients that are pregnant, they get burned or have to have some type of surgery like melanoma, recession with reconstruction. What's the safest uh, trimester to be able to do that? How do you counsel this, uh, counsel this patient uh, on the risk of surgery during this time, on traumas, facial traumas and stuff like that? Those are things you have to pick up. You also need to know how to present patients, like be able to have an intelligent and concise conversation with uh, a colleague on uh, the patient. You know, you can't like, you know, blabber on about their social life mm -hmm. when, you know, they were just in this bad motor vehicular accident and, you know, their zygoma is three centimeters displaced and their, rec their uh, medial rectus muscle is entrapped and, you know, they're having syncopal episodes and you're not sure if they're cleared by neurosurgery. You, you know, you need to be able to like have, be able to break down the images and come up with a concise and informative plan to be able to talk to other colleagues about. And I think that's probably the biggest thing you can work on. If you feel like that you're acing it on a rotation in regards to like knowing the medications and doses and stuff like that, then you need to be able, you need to start working on how can I present patients to the level of a chief resident, you know what I'm saying? So to me, I feel like that will get you so much farther as an intern, coming in as an intern or a sub-I before you even make it to intern year, that will really impress other residents because they'll see that before they'll see your technical skills. Hmm. Yeah, that's some great advice. When you're not in the operating room, uh, what do you do with your spare time? I work on my social media. <laughs> I treat it like a job. <laughs> Uh, I like to cook, man. I'm a, a huge foodie. I like to, uh, uh, I watch a lot of cooking channel and food channels. So I try to like imitate different recipes or come up with new recipes. So I like to cook. I work out pretty religiously. I try to watch my diet. Those are probably the biggest things I do. I like to read. I still like to read. I'm a huge. So this is funny because when people would come to interview, uh, you know, at, at USF for plastic surgery, you know, a lot of the residents did, like, a lot of cool things. A lot of them were real outdoorsy, so a lot of them went snorkeling or scuba diving because we were, like, right on the beach. Mm -hmm. uh, some people worked with wood and leather. Uh, some people went out shooting. Uh, you know, they had, like, own guns. Like, me? Like, I like... I'm a couch potato. I like to lay on the couch and binge watch TV. Like, that's 
and I like to eat. So that's what I always do. I was, I'm a huge couch potato. And that's probably why I go to the gym religiously. So I don't <laughs> look like a huge uh, couch potato. But yeah, man, I'm just a really, uh, really chill dude. Um, I just like to cook, watch movies, watch television, uh, read, and, uh, and, and buy sneakers. Lots of, lots of sneakers for no reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would say that's about it, though. How, how many pair of sneakers do you have? Uh, I don't have as many as some of my uh, my colleagues, but uh, <laughs> I don't know over tw- over twenty or thirty, I think. I don't know. I've never, it's just like stitches, you know. Patients always ask you, "How many stitches did you throw?" And I'm like, "I have no clue because I don't count." <laughs> <laughs> just en- enough to get the wound closed. Right, right. Um, and then recently, you know. Talked about social media. You started your YouTube channel. Tell us about that. So my YouTube channel is basically kind of like a lot of things that I've talked about. I talk about medicine, you know, plastic surgery, tips and tricks for like, you know, incoming med students. Uh, I talk about food, uh, sneakers, like everything that I like. It's basically just a YouTube channel on me. So it's like a big hodgepodge. It's a little bit of everything. So one minute I'm talking about like risk and benefits of an abdominal plasty. And then next thing you know, I'm talking about the new Air Force Ones, you know, uh, limited edition pairs. That's dope. Uh, what, how do they find your YouTube channel? Uh, so you can look under uh, MD. Also on my Instagram page, I have a, a link in my bio that'll take you straight to my uh, YouTube channel easily. Perfect. And we'll uh, leave the, the links in the comments below this. One thing I for sure want to touch on, Dr. Triggs, in the world of plastic surgery, there's also cosmetic surgery. There's a lot of physicians that are doing liposuction, doing other types of procedures. There's a lot of nurse practitioners and nurses that are doing injections and more of the aesthetic procedures. What do you as a plastic surgeon say about these these new advances in, in medicine? And, and what do you say about people that are practicing in, in different aspects of their scope, I guess. So uh, I, I am not a fan of like other physicians practicing beyond their scope because what we learn in a surgery or and especially plastic surgery is if you can't fix the complication, then you shouldn't be doing the surgery. Um, so, you know, if you go in there and your ob gyn gives you a tummy tuck and, you know, botches it, they're not going to be able to fix that, you know, the you know, the botched procedure, you know, or if like your dermatologist is doing liposuction and punctures your bowel, you know, several times or lacerates your liver because they didn't have a good appreciation of the plane they were supposed to be in to uh, aspirate the fat, you know, they're not going to be the ones to fix that complication once, you know, you get stable enough to have the complication fixed. So why, why take a chance with the one body that you, you're given? As for injectables, I feel like with good training, you know, uh, or, you know, uh, with experience and, you know, training that I don't think that's as bad, but you can really mess people up with, especially dermal fillers. You can put it in a blood vessel and cause somebody to go blind. You can put it in a blood vessel and cause skin necrosis to the point where they need to have a reconstruction as if they were a, a burn or a cancer patient. And so, you know, you can't just go in there sticking needles everywhere thinking, oh, this is how you do it, you know, because you're going to grossly deform somebody. And once they're like that deformed, and it's hard to get them to even look or have any type of resemblance of some something normal. A lot of times it can't mm. be fixed. You can only 
temporize it or try to get them at least a little bit better because the damage is pretty much done. And that's and that's the same for the cosmetic procedures as well. So there are ways to becoming board certified or being able to do some of these procedures, you know, either through a general surgery residency or otolaryngology, you know, ENT, you know, kind of consider those as spatial plastic surgeons because mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're training, they get a fair amount of it, even general surgery. But you know, you, if you can't fix the complication, you shouldn't be doing the surgery. And the same thing with the injectables, too. I say I'm a little less stringent on the injectables because there are some really good nurse and nurse practitioner uh, injectors. But a lot of times they've had a lot of like um, expensive training and, you know, shadowing and uh, the hours, like hours of uh, injecting under under guidance. So how do patients know, you know, who is a good experienced esthetician to go to? How do patients know that they're going to see a, a certified plastic surgeon versus a cosmetic surgeon or a physician who's kind of doing something on the side? So to become a plastic surgeon, you have to undergo a surgical residency. So, you know, if, if you're going to say you want to get a, a Brazilian butt lift, because that's kind of like the hot topic right now, um, and you go to see a surgeon and you ask him what his specialty is. And he says, oh, I'm a cosmetic surgeon. He says, oh, all right, well, what did you do your, your residency in, uh, your residency training in? And they tell you, oh, I did emergency room medicine at Emory. That's a, that's a no-go. Because a, right. a lot of emergency uh, programs don't even, you don't even do a plastic surgery rotation. So that's a huge red flag. You know, if it's almost like, oh, well, I did my general surgery at UCF and then I did a plastics fellowship at UT Southwestern, then that's a legit guy. And then there's also the check for the American Board of Plastic Surgery, whether if they're board certified or board eligible. So right now I'm in my board eligibility, so I'm considered board eligible. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for injectors, there's not really much you can do outside of looking at pictures and seeing if they're associated with a physician's office that meets their credentials. So that's a little harder. It's a lot harder. But as for like surgical procedures, you know, you just got to ask them like, you know, their credentials. And that that's the, the only thing you can really do. Because a lot of people are like, oh, I'm a cosmetic surgeon. I did this, this training. But you need to find out that actual name. And then you can actually look on the American Board of Plastic Surgery website to see if they're board certified or board, or board eligible. All right, that's what's up. So say somebody goes out of the country, gets some discount plastic surgery, they're having problems, they're having pain, whatever the case may be. How do they get that taken care of? How do they get that fixed? A lot of times you have to do it through an emergency room because um, no private practice plastic surgeon is going to want to handle somebody else's complication. And so it would have to be to the point where, you know, you're having like a legitimate like emergency, like some type of infection or breast implant exposure, something like that. And then they, and whatever plastic surgeon is taking call that night would evaluate them and kind of go from there. But uh, I'll tell you, like when I was in training, we had a lot of that. You know, we had a lady that um, had a, I think she had a mommy makeover. So she had a liposuction, a tummy tuck and uh, breast lift with implants. And the lower part of the skin of her tummy tuck necrose. So we had to go in there, mm-hmm. clean up, like, you know, the, the, the skin from her belly, you know. And she had this huge wound 
with no belly button, you know, extended. And so we had to basically skin graft her. And the only way for her to like even look normal is if we, is once that skin graft continues to contract like a scar contracture, is cut out little pieces of skin graft and try to advance her, her, her belly skin down to try to get her to look normal. But that's, that's not an insurance covered procedure. You got to pay for that out of pocket. Mm. So, and a lot of times once you have these procedures overseas, your insurance is, is not going to pay for any type of procedures after that. So that's all out of pocket at that point. Wow. So pretty much if you're messed up, you've got to come back and either find a plastic surgeon who's willing to fix this, which sounds like it's hard, yep. or wait till something goes horribly wrong to where you're having emergency surgery. Yeah, and if you're having emergency surgery, so say your implants get infected, uh, all the plastic surgeons I know are just going to take those implants out, wash it out, put some drains in, and close it up. So you're not going to have those implants anymore. So you're done. You're back deflated Ooh. all over again. <laughs> you said deflated? Deflated, yeah. Oh, man. Well, Dr. Triggs, thank you. I think this was uh, definitely some helpful information, definitely some stuff that I did not know. I guess I need to cancel this uh, weekend course I scheduled for life. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, tell the folks again, if they want to get a hold of you, if they want to ask you questions about uh, matching in a plastic surgery or even people interested in seeing you as a, a patient in Ohio, how would they get a hold of you? Where can they find you on social media as well as uh, professionally? So uh, social media, you can just go to my Instagram page. It's at WTriggsMD. Um, I have a link in my bio for contacts that'll contact my uh, the number for my office in Ohio. It also has, it should have a link for my email as well, which is WTriggsMD at Gmail. You submit your questions or comments or whatever from there or just write in the comments. I also have a link with that same profile to uh, to my YouTube channel as well. At some point, I'll be launching my website, but until then, all things like through my Instagram are usually pretty easy. You can contact me from there without any issues. Dr. Triggs, thank you so much for coming on the show. Wish you the best of luck in the future. We'll definitely stay tuned and see how your career progresses. I appreciate it, Steve. Thank you so much. Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.